while it's not in its heyday or maybe some of the romanticism is gone, I think there is something about still like it is the most fundamental form of just like two people in a ring who can punch the other one. And, you know, elections are like two guys fighting. They're just fighting, um, you know, rhetorically or through policy and not uh, uh, with their fists. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is New York Times sports columnist Kevin Draper. He wrote a great article about the September 11th Triller fight, which headlined a near 59-year-old Evander Holyfield fighting an ex-MMA fighter. Uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. both called the fight on some alternate stream after Jim Lampley ducked out in protest. I mean, just such a weird, weird event. And uh, Draper just distilled it better than anybody else. So I wanted to talk to him. I've never talked to him before. Don't know him personally. But uh, I loved just how his brain broke it all down. And it was a fun conversation. So I hope you enjoy Kevin Draper, this week's guest on Tourist Information. Uh, so I really enjoyed your article um, about the 7th, September 11th fights. Um, where do you start with something like that? What was it like for you um, tuning into the latest chapter of Ryan Kavanaugh and his uh, traveling roadshow? And so I'm, you know, a sports business reporter. And so I kind of start at it first from that angle that I am, you know, I like boxing and I cover it some, but I'm not a boxing reporter. And so, yes, I need to cover the fights, but I'm looking at it uh, more from the business angle and kind of what interests me most about a thriller, a fight like that is sort of the tension between is this a real thing does this have a real effect on sort of you know title fights and and serious boxing uh, or to what extent is it an exhibition or you know kind of a, a sideshow or something like that and i think it's actually in some ways easy to deride it as a sideshow these are a bunch of app guys getting involved and paying to have logan paul and donald trump and whatever but also they, you know, went to the the purse bid for the Teofimo Lopez fight. And I sort of as someone that watches lots of sports TV, I think there's some good things about their presentation that maybe is something that kind of more normal boxing can adopt or look at the camera angles or the lighting or the uh, uh, music between fights or things like that. So I kind of try to come from a, a, that angle of, okay, there's crazy stuff happening here and crazy stuff is worth covering, but it's not, it shouldn't just be dismissed as like, this is crazy. Maybe there's actual real important things going on here. Well, I, I interviewed Kavanaugh for Bloomberg, uh, I think just before the Jones Tyson fight. And I, I think I had him for an hour. I don't think there was a discernible sentence that he uttered to me that made a shred of sense about what the business plan was where they were headed, where they were getting money from. It was probably the most unusual interview that I've ever conducted with anybody in boxing, which is quite an accomplishment. Um, what, what do you make of Ryan Kavanaugh and, and just Triller in general since you've been covering them? 
Uh, could you could you ask the second half of that question again? It, it cut out a little bit. Sorry, I just said what what have you made of Ryan Kavanaugh's stewardship of Triller and just Triller in general? I mean, having a fifty nine year old, well, virtually fifty nine year old, stand in for Oscar De La Hoya. Um, not what I think he landed one punch in this fight. I mean, <laughs> is, is this a product that you you see real long term upside in, or what do you make of it? Yeah, I I go back and forth a lot, um, and I guess one of the surprising things I've found, sort of just generally talking to people around boxing about sort of this wave of YouTube influencer fights or, you know, old guys a decade past their prime fights. Um, I expected to hear and see a lot more opposition to it than I did, uh, but but I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing more, hey, this is good. Like this brings new people into the sport. If you know, 95% of them go away when Jake Paul goes away or they're only tuning in because they remember the name of Ander Holyfield from, you know, when his ear got bit. Uh, but hey, if 5% of them stay, you know, that's thousands or tens of thousands of people that uh, are into boxing. I think that the, the challenge is that Many of the fighters, except at the top level, are not particularly known quantities. And so really, if you're in this long term, like the thing you have to do is you have to build up a fighter over a decade. You have to get them into the right fights. You have to slowly get their name out there so that they are a Floyd Mayweather or a Manny Pacquiao or an Evander Holyfield. And that's where I don't know that Triller has the constitution or the desire to like take a you know guy that got a silver medal at the olympics but is raw or something and and build them up into somebody that can buy you know get a million people to buy a pay-per-view i think it's easier in some ways to go evander holyfield's a name you know uh, logan paul jake paul is a name but i don't know that you can do that outside of a handful of fights a year and doing the sort of 30 fights a year that top rank does or however many golden boy or uh, you know other promotions like that are doing i think that's uh, uh, much more of a slog and as you well know boxing isn't that high margin of a business lots of your money has to go to the fighters you have to actually put the thing on the you know in demand and the pay-per-view provider takes a big cut of the thing uh, and that's frankly both you know some of the good thing and the bad thing about boxing it's it's good for the fighters that they you know they receive a much higher percentage of revenue than ufc fighters do for instance uh and you know if you're a fighter that's good and you should get that money if you're a promoter it's a lot harder to promote and put tons of money into the sport when you know your margins are are really low um and so so yeah i think i think doing five fights a year or doing showcases is one thing being like a serious long-term boxing promoter is another and, and really difficult. Where do you see this going? Like, I mean, I was kind of fascinated with the Tyson Jones fight because of its commercial viability. Unlike say Pacquiao and Floyd, where there was an enormous degree of buyer's remorse. What kind of shocked me was 
that Jones Tyson seemed like a game of tag, like geriatric tag. And <laughs> consumers were very satisfied with it. There was not much backlash to it, to the product. And I thought, like, why are we even bothering with ex-athletes? Like, wh why why is that necessary when you could go for even higher profile people? I mean, I think Evander Holyfield's last fight was against Mitt Romney. Um, <laughs> in Canada, it was actually a massive springboard for Justin Trudeau to fight a conservative and demonstrate that a liberal had the guts and muster to beat him in the ring. It was actually what really galvanized Justin Trudeau's p political campaign. I'm just wondering, like, in Roman times, they escalated the degree of violence to go from just gladiatorial to including women to reenacting myths. There'd be, you know, Icarus being pushed off the roof and he's wearing wings in front of families that were watching. Um, where does this stop? Like if somebody doesn't get killed at 58 or 59 years old or, or you know, has a pulmonary embolism, does this just keep escalating in order to retain the audience that it has and gain more of an audience? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question that, or one of the big questions that I don't know that we have a great answer to is, to what degree does boxing skill actually matter for these things? So right. I'm with you in that the Tyson Jones one, it did good numbers and this sort of kind of amorphous feeling I have is that people were satisfied by it and seems apart because it was like, oh God, like Mike Tyson kind of looks like he could still be out there fighting. Like, even though it's this exhibition, you saw flashes of like, oh God, he is so fast and he is such a terrifying fighter. And so I don't know that, you know, every hardcore boxing fan was like, yes, that was the greatest thing on earth. But it at least seemed to satisfy some amount of like, I, I enjoy the sport of boxing. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think some of the Jake Paul stuff has been okay. Um, you know, he's not a professional fighter, uh, but like, you know, he's not me in the ring. He's not like a street fight video of, uh, you know, some guys slapping each other. Um, whereas, you know, what we saw on the weekend, we had what the two main fights were over in, you know, in the first round. Uh, Evander Holyfield very clearly should not have been allowed to fight should, should not have been sanctioned like he should not have been in the ring and that was not actual boxing um and i think you can get away with one of those what happens when the next three of these you know don't don't actually show any boxing um even if it is you know pick two celebrities or two stars uh do they have to show some competence at this thing and i think there's probably a um the level of the person matters so if michael jordan and lebron james got into the ring five million people are going to buy that thing no matter how talented you know talented these guys actually are at boxing right. but if you go down the ring and you pick you know down the rungs of fame and you pick the uh you know 400 best player in the nba on the bench and fight him against some guy like that it not many people are going to buy it and so i think there's sort of a um uh the more famous people the less boxing ability you need but the less famous, it needs to actually have some sort of kind of sporting intrigue to to get people interested. And so I'm not sure what is next. I don't know. I don't I don't think we've seen any numbers from Triller on this. And frankly, I don't even know that, you know, we have a sense 
of from decades of this of, of what's successful what's not how many people need to buy or how much buzz or how good does a fight need to be i'm not sure that those normal heuristics apply to triller and you could tell me they got a hundred thousand buys and normally we would say oh that's a huge failure and i don't I don't know that that's a failure because I don't know exactly what they want, nor do I know if the normal economics of how this work actually apply to them, given that, you know, the, the end goal of a top rank or a golden boy or whoever is, is, is boxing. The end goal of a thriller is we are a, you know, TikTok like app and we need to get people onto our platform. And if it doesn't succeed in a boxing way, but it succeeds in a, you know, advertising for Triller way that that may well be a success for them. What did you make of Trump's involvement in this and this masquerade of equal opportunity bipartisanship on the part of Kavanaugh that Obama has been reached out to, even though, as you clarified in your article, um, according to his foundation spokeswoman, that is not the case. And there was no evidence that was supplied on Kavanaugh's side to support his assertion. Yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, at the fundamental level, uh, this may be a little bit technical, but the Obama Foundation isn't even really the right people to reach out to. There's a, you know, Barack and Michelle Obama office and people there, um, you know, deal with what the, what the former president does on a daily basis. The foundation is much more of a, you know, you are donating money uh, to this thing. And so if you're actually negotiating with high level people over whether Barack Obama does something, uh, you are not talking to uh, foundation staffers. Um, you know, I think they they build it or, or at least kind of put out there that this would be a nonpartisan thing and that Donald Trump has this long history in boxing, which is true. Um, and there wasn't, you know, that much, you know, there weren't chance of lock her up from Trump and he didn't talk about whether he was going to run in 2024 or whatnot. Uh, but sort of any politician is by definition political, and uh, especially after the events of January 6 and sort of the power that Trump still has within the Republican Party, um, just his you know very presence uh, uh, says a lot in, in is politics in a nutshell. Um, I well, think. I, sorry to interrupt, but also saying nothing of the fact that he foregoes going to the 9-11 memorial in order to allocate three and a half hours. And right. That is an interesting commentary in terms of where he sees uh, the best use of his time. Right. And there were multiple, you know, uh, references to the, you know, authoritarian president in Brazil and about how that guy is uh, is a, a great friend of his. And um, and, you know, you have Tito Ortiz on the uh, on the bill who is, you know, was a city councilman until recently and a very sort of in Trump's mold city councilman, which in part is what led to him no longer being on the city council. Uh, you know, I think that. Uh, for one, it's just it's publicity. It got way more coverage of this thing. It presumably got people to tune in. Uh, it got, you know, I, I was planning on covering this before Trump came around, but that made it even even more so um, to cover it or, or more of an incentive to do so. And so part of it, I think, is just sort of a naked publicity ploy. Um, and, you know, if you are, I, I mean, perhaps one would not that much downside. I mean, Trump already sort of is 
associated heavily with not maybe not heavily, uh, but but with Triller. He has an account on Triller, uh, and he sort of talked about it. And this became a thing last fall when um, the kind of Trump administration was pushing. TikTok's Chinese owners to divest the American portion of TikTok and the American TikTok CEO, Kevin Mayer, now of DAZN, stepped down at the time. Um, it's actually something that divesting, we haven't seen much about it in the last nine months and still the American version is owned or the data is owned by the, the Chinese version. But all that to say, Triller has sort of already decided we are in the business of sort of aligning with Donald Trump. And so in that way, them deciding to do it, you know, nine months later after he was involved in their app, I think isn't surprising. And I think to some degree, there's probably not too much downside to it. If you actually wanted to watch these fights as a boxing fan, uh, I don't know that there's too many boxing fans that were like, I really want to see Evander Holyfield, but now I'm not going to buy because Donald Trump is involved. Now, granted, we can argue whether any boxing fans actually wanted to see 58-year-old Evander Holyfield box, but assuming they did, I don't know that Trump turns them off. And presumably there's some mass of people who otherwise would not watch this thing or care about it or know about it that did uh, tune in for Trump. And so I think it is possibly a you know, low risk, uh, uh, maybe high reward promotion strategy, which is probably a good encapsulation of what Triller is doing in a nutshell. Uh, you know, I don't know what amount of advertising money they have to spend to become, you know, one of the five or 10 biggest social media networks in the United States. I assume the answer is tens or hundreds of millions of dollars over many years. And in that way, getting tons of attention via boxing where you spend some money, but you get some money back from pay-per-view is maybe also a low risk, low reward advertising strategy, as opposed to buying ads on TV, flooding Instagram and Facebook with ads, uh, you know, paying people to use the app or whatever they, they have to do. Well, given that boxing, like, you know, wherever it is now, I mean, the boxing is dead thing has been going on for over a hundred years in newspapers <laughs> around the country. Uh, still here, still regularly minting the highest paid athletes in the world with Mayweather. I mean, still just uh, really heady, surreal sums that people can generate. Even even a Mike Tyson, Roy Jones of absolutely no relevance and it's right. crazy money. But it, there, there seems to me, and I wonder if you agree with this, a bit of a parallel with what happened with professional wrestling versus actual wrestling, where like at the end of the 1930s, nobody really cared about it being a, an actual sport or competition. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to move into it as spectacle and then allow screenwriters to come in to make it even more interesting and turn it into the soap opera with spandex. It seems like boxing is being hijacked in kind of a similar way here, where I'm seeing all of these people on the sidelines of the biggest draws that, that regular boxing has, bitching and whining about how viable and successful a product Triller has been. And I'm wondering, is this like the first murmur of us really moving into, I mean, journalism sends out Sean Penn to interview El Chapo. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, this is happening everywhere that if you're an influencer, I don't really care how good you are at doing it. You're at least going to bring a lot more eyeballs to it than people who are actually good because we're less interested. I don't know any American that I've ever met that could name a gold medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling at the last Olympics. 
yet everybody knows the kind of pantheon of great wrestlers over the last 30 years. Do you see boxing moving into this area where the sideshow is going to become the main tent? To right. some I mean, so so I think that certainly boxing and every uh, corner of American life is, uh, I guess, no pun intended, being influenced by influencers. That sort of influencer culture and that form of celebrity uh, is touching everything and will and is changing everything. And so I think the, the question is, does that change and modify boxing, you know, by 10%? Or does that change and modify boxing by 50% or 75% or 100%? And that, uh, I think, will take a little bit longer to know and figure out. Because um, I think that that the, the boxing is dead thing, like you said, has been going on for a, a long, long time. Um, and part of it is, I think, a, a sort of uh, reflection of who has a dominant voice in, in media and culture right now, which is that there's a generation of people who love boxing and remember it as huge from Ali and Foreman and Hearns and Hagler and et cetera. Those people are um, you know, mostly over the age of whatever it is, 55. I don't know exactly where the cutoff is. And um, they are not the ones in charge at anymore at ESPN, at the New York Times, at ad buying companies, at whatever. And I think there's also a generation that is probably under 30, um, who is often a more international and a more diverse generation who uh, likes boxing or perhaps likes the UFC and is generally a combat sports fan. And while I know that there's lots of tension between sort of diehard mixed martial arts and boxing camps uh from my understanding the sort of crossover is maybe more than you think especially when you consider that whether you're whichever one you're a fan of you're sort of used to this idea of like once a month on a saturday night i get a bunch of friends together or i go to a bar and i pay some money for like a big event thing and i think the crossover between people who'd go hey i'll pay for this you know, title bout in boxing versus this UFC match is actually a, a fairly high. But these are also not the people who have um, purchase in the culture uh, or at the, the gatekeeping positions. It is mostly a group of, you know, 35 to 55 year old, mostly white men who are too young to have been there for boxing's, you know, sort of latest heyday uh, and are too old to be in sort of the the new rise of, you know, Latino fans like in combat sports, black fans like in combat sports, combat sports being huge in many areas outside of the United States, uh, which is all to say. I don't think that it's impossible that over the next 10 years, you know, boxing is firmly established as the sixth most popular sport in America or something behind the four big ones in soccer or the seventh or eighth. And it is sort of a legitimate sport that sure has a bunch of influencer sideshow stuff, but like the NBA has and is going to have influencer sideshow stuff and the NFL is going to have it. And that's, sort of just the way the landscape is these days. If if a commodity's value is commensurate with our desire for it, why do you think boxing still resonates the way it does? Like, I mean, I, I don't know if you covered um, Pacquiao Mayweather, but 
you know, the idea of somebody making $200 million for not even a night's work, like calling it work seems a, you know, a little over the top. Um, why is this still something we're just watching a couple of guys beat the hell out of each other, be it in, in MMA or here? I mean, I know you've had your run-ins with Dana White historically as well, and, and he certainly wears his politics on his sleeve and, um, you know, speaking at a Republican convention and, and you know, uh, often when I'm in Manhattan, I not often, but on occasion, I had been interrupted on a bike ride with the motorcade of Trump going to an event <laughs> at MSG. Um, so I guess, like, what is it, where do you see combat, covering combat sports right now, like where it resonates in the culture, despite the sort of it's dead thing, it does seem still a, a refuge. It, as you pointed out in the article, it is important, I think, that Trump has allowed this to be one of the most visible venues where he's been seen after after his presidency. Right, right. And I think, you know, uh, going back to kind of what you said at the beginning there, it is notable that, you know, Pacquiao and Mayweather made whatever the exact figure is, $200 million. You know, it takes LeBron James five years to make that amount of money in the NBA. It even takes Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, I don't know, three years, two years, I don't know their exact salaries at this moment. But you are right that that boxing can still generate these huge sums. And I think a, a lot of some of the stuff is is just economics. It is that, um, you know, a few boxers make a huge amount of money. If you look at world soccer, how many soccer players make a living playing soccer? You know, the answer is tens of thousands of people across the world. How many people make a living at boxing? It's, you know, a couple hundred or, or whatever the number is at, at any given time. And so some of this stuff, I think, is not necessarily a commentary on the popularity of one sport or the other, but it's just sort of the kind of the, the way it is structured economically and how that distributes money. But you are right that that five million people, um, you know, or four point whatever million people paid for a pay-per-view and even the Jones Tyson 1.5 or one point something. And if you put that on regular TV, you know, we would assume that thing is getting five, six, eight, ten million 10 million people. It's getting a NBA finals uh, um, type number. And so I think that's a lot of the reason why the boxing is dead stuff is so dumb is that Clearly, there are still lots of people interested in the sport. Uh, how they can or do not pay for it or, or whatnot is is different from whether they are interested in or they want to to follow it. And I think, um, you know, it it while it's not in its heyday or maybe some of the romanticism is gone. I think there is something about still like it is the most fundamental form of just like two people in a ring who can punch the other one and you know elections are like two guys fighting they're just fighting um you know rhetorically or through policy not uh, uh with their fists um and i think the other thing is that um you know i i was not a boxing fan growing up uh you know it took me into my 20s to get into it and a lot of the way i got into it is I was a media member and I went to cover a fight. And the first time I covered a fight in person, it was like, oh my God, like this thing is incredible. And part of it is like, oh God, it's incredible in a bad way. Like I'm cringing over here because I can't imagine taking one of those punches, let alone 300 of those punches. Um, but there is something, it's like an, inc it is an incredible sporting event. And so I, I think that, um, 
there there is still just if you go to a boxing match if you go to a fun you know pay-per-view watching party uh the the energy and the atmosphere and the excitement and the kind of greatness of the sport uh still resonates even if the economic model is weird or broken or stupid like the fights are still good or fighting is still interesting yeah i mean i guess just obviously the stakes are much bigger in boxing than you know lebron loses a, a final it's not that you could die with any punch. Right. Um, but yeah, I, and, and similarly, there's if it's if it's done well, it is a you know maybe not a Super Bowl, but it is a playoff game. Um, you know, sure, you've got Friday night fights, or you've got you know stuff that that lower you know rated boxers and people that 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 mainstream audience haven't heard of are there. But if you are a you know casual boxing fan and you are going to watch six fights a year maybe 12 fights a year there's something i think really good and fun and nice about like i'm looking forward to this thing for two weeks i'm building up to this i am i am you know getting hyped for this in a way that you know sure the world series is big but baseball is a fundamentally different fandom it's uh you know every single day low level fandom whereas boxing can be a very event fandom what do you what do you make of the competition and the acrimony between boxing and the MMA? I mean, it, it seems still uh, when I was first in boxing gyms as a teenager was when the MMA was being discussed, when it was really modeling itself on blood sport. Right. And, and that sort of thing. And I wondered at that point, like, does this have a hope in hell of, of ever gaining sort of just in a mainstream kind of way? And yet. You know what what they established with Ronda Rousey. I mean, I I can't think of another example in any sport where from the owner saying I won't have women fighting to the woman being the biggest transcendent star that the sport has ever produced. That's bigger than sports. I mean, she became a national, if not international, icon. Um, despite the fact that when she was exposed with the, the most recent two losses, there's been this kind of reevaluation of how good was she when right. there really was world-class competition and all these comparisons to Mike Tyson and everything. And, and now Joe Rogan having a bitter, bigger audience on a month-to-month -month basis than all of CNN put together um, on the back of being a commentator for this sport. Um, boxing certainly hasn't had anything like this kind of shift or um, ascension, like other than a few big fights that the people who took in money from it celebrated, everybody else condemned it as being indicative of all that's kind of hollow and shitty about our time right now, you know, right. uh, lauding movies that nobody wants to revisit. That, that's right. one of the thing. Um, so I just wonder for you what it's been like covering the two sports, how it's different and, and what you make of the ascension of the MMA. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly kind of as I, I talked about a little bit earlier, I think a lot of the fighting uh, between fans of the two sports is a sort of generational thing that is not relevant to people under pick your age, 18, 25. You know, they didn't grow up with the, you know, boxing is the sweet science and the pure sport. And this is, you know, uh, blood sport and cockfighting over here and, and et cetera. Uh, they just grew up as people where both these sports are somewhat established. And, um, you know, maybe we like one, maybe we like other. I think in a lot of the cases, it's 
you know, I like both. Sure, maybe I'm a little more fan of this one, but I don't have a, a problem with with the other. And so I think sort of generally generationally, you're going to see a lot of the animosity fade uh, over the next five to ten years. Um, there, I think a, a lot of it goes back to kind of what we were talking about with the business models, where for an individual fighter the boxing business model is much better. You, you know, this is why we have in UFC, John Jones hasn't fought in however long. And Francis Naganu is like the new transcendent star of the sport. And he can't get a fight because him and UFC can't agree on how much he should be paid for that fight. Um, and, you know, a mediocre boxer who makes a title fight, just that one fight is going to make him more money than, the vast majority of UFC fighters ever, you know, earn in their entire lifetimes. And that's why Conor McGregor crosses over uh, to fight Mayweather because he makes more in that fight than he ever did in the UFC. And that's why Ben Askren and people like that, you know, I don't exactly know what they made, but they're making more than they did in the UFC. And the kind of fighters antitrust lawsuit against the UFC is basically shown that fighters make roughly 20% of the revenue. And, for an individual fighter, that's really bad. For the sport, I think it has been helpful in many ways because the UFC can say, you have to fight three times a year. And like, that doesn't happen in boxing. There's nobody telling anybody you have to fight. And so we have these, you know, Mayweather and, and, and uh, Pacquiao is the obvious example of a fight that happened 10 years later than it should have, five years later than it should have. And now we're having, you know, all the heavyweights right now. Like, when are we ever going to see, you know, uh, Wilder and Fury and, and these guys kind of actually fight each other? We're not seeing that at a cadence we would have liked. Whereas the UFC can go, no, you have to do this fight. Or, uh, and, and they can similarly, they can build up stars because they have such a huge you know, marketing and financial muscle behind it. And they can exactly schedule who these guys should be fighting so they can build up Ronda Rousey. And then when Ronda Rousey loses twice, it's like, eh, we have somebody else that we have in the pipeline that will hopefully take over for, for Ronda Rousey. Um, and so that for that sport is probably good. And for a fan, if you don't care about the livelihoods or anything like that, it's like, eh, the UFC's got a good fight for me every month, whereas boxing were, you know, the the sort of anarchy of boxing is good for the fighters, but sometimes is not good for the buildup for the sport. And so I wonder if this is going to change. There's lots of challenges to this in MMA. There is the big antitrust lawsuit from the fighters against the UFC. There's been another one filed. Like Ariel Helwani reported like literally today that some people we don't know who are trying to start a new mixed martial arts organization that has a little more of a franchise model and pays fighters more. And so maybe this is a, a challenge to the UFC. Um, but and 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 yeah, and so I think that that a lot of this is is that boxing's anarchy just kind of holds it back because, I mean, it's so difficult to understand what belts does this guy have? Why does he have to fight? Oh, why is this like corrupt state organization putting, you know, incompetent referees on, uh, you know, refereeing this fight for an obviously, you know, decision that is terrible. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what the solution to that necessarily is. Well, and, and I mean, point taken, I mean, if you run a dictatorship, it's going to be a lot more efficient, right. it's going to be a it's going to be a better product for you. 
but in terms of the cannon fodder of the people, you know, it's a complete black box. And Dana White basically celebrates that it's a black box. Right. He, he seems to take it as an affront to even raise the specter of any kind of transparency or agency on the part of his fighters. I mean, what you left out is that they don't get to choose who they fight and, right. and also how they fight them. You could net like a Floyd Mayweather would have been grossly criticized by Dana White as being boring. Whereas in boxing, he can get away with it because the perfect record is what the premium is placed on, right. as opposed to how he would criticize, say, Anderson Silva for not winning appropriately. Right, and right. And Andy con controls it financially. Sure, you have to agree to a contract for the fight. But if you are, if you have a boring or a defensive fighting style, the UFC is going to pay you less. And then they hand out, you know, fight of the night and various other bonuses, which that fighter is never going to get. And so, yeah, you're right that it, it incentivizes an exciting form of fighting that is not necessarily the best route to winning. And that's what I think a lot about, about the most boring superstars in other sports. Derek Jeter has never said an interesting thing in his entire life, yet he can win, you know, make $25 million a year because he is a obviously very talented shortstop. Some people find Tom Brady interesting. I don't sort of find him interesting as a person, but obviously he's an incredible quarterback. Um, uh, but the UFC and boxing to some extent certainly incentivize outlandishness or or exciting fighting at the expense of actually winning or being you know good at your sport. What do you make of the fact, though, with the UFC? Because you said earlier in terms of them being able to replace a star like Ronda Rousey, but they didn't. Because Holly Holmes did not become Ronda Rousey, nor, nor did the, the next fighter who beat her. And it seems like if you are not able to have some degree of duration to saturate your brand with, with an audience, um, there is a disposability to the UFC where the greatest character it seems to have created is Dana White. Right, right, which up. is, yeah, which is sort of incredible. Like, you know, NFL fans know Roger Goodell and they boo him and they certainly have opinions. Right. Uh, on him, but yeah, no one is uh, tuning in for Roger Goodell or really cares what Roger Goodell thinks in a way that Dana White stays at the, the the forefront of that sport. I mean, I think the UFC or maybe Endeavor, who owns them, is sort of uh, recognizes that the the um, how they need to create these fighters and the risk if they they don't create them, and that's why they've sort of taken a lot of the risk out of their business by signing these huge deals with ESPN. And so not only do they have a sort of big you know multi billion dollar deal to just I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's put you know thirty fights on a year, forty fights on a year, many of them on ESPN, many of them on ESPN Plus. But ESPN has even bought into they they now uh, kind of are the ones that run the pay per views, and I don't know the exact contractual breakdown, but ESPN takes a lot of the risk and the upside from a great pay per view. Uh, you know, ESPN will get paid a bad pay per view. ESPN is the one that loses out, less so the UFC, and so of course. The UFC still has an incentive to, you know, create huge fighters and huge fights, and eventually that contract will be over, and they want to be able to go out into the market and, and get an even bigger contract. But they're now, you know, if you if you look at their revenues, they used to be pretty lumpy. With did we have three good pay per views this year? Our you know revenue shot up. Did we not? Our revenue went down, and it's kind of a lot smoother now because of this. And so they're less hurt by the fact that. 
you know, who takes over for Ronda Rousey, who takes over for Conor McGregor. And so I think that there's also a distinction between to be made between they've created plenty of fighters who fighting fans like. There's lots of guys that UFC fans like and women that UFC fans like that are good that you tune into. They have not done as good of a job of creating a crossover star in the way that McGregor and, and Ronda Rousey are. You know, I think Naganu could be that person, uh, but that's just, you know, one man's opinion. It's not uh, who knows what will actually happen there. Um, but but yeah, but so I think they they need to do it less and you can still have a very successful business being the fifth biggest sport in the country or only serving the people that are already at combat sports events and already are combat sports events, even if you don't create the kind of person who can, you know, make a bit part on Fast and the Furious and like have the mainstream audience know who they are. In in your view, just last question. Um, I, I was doing a piece when WME purchased purchased the UFC and a friend of mine who's a boxing manager of many world champions made the point when I was asking about uh, you know was this a good purchase he said well maybe but all indicators seem to suggest they may have just bought MySpace and I you know immediately had a title to the piece <laughs> they just MySpace? Um, which which the UFC did not appreciate when I was interviewing some of the executives who were there um, but I wonder in your view um, they are definitely trying to laud how much money was invested. Do you now see this as a good investment, like in terms of the indicators of the overall health? Like what are the bellwethers of the UFC's long-term financial situation? Right, right. So there's, uh, uh, for one, there's a, a big wild card here, which is that antitrust lawsuit. In theory, um, the fighters could win, I think it's $4.6 billion in this lawsuit. And if they win $4.6 billion or anywhere close to $4.6 billion, um, you know, that is a, a, a massive, massive problem and a loss for UFC and Endeavor. If they settle the lawsuit for $100 million, um, you know, that's a uh, uh, a bummer and the UFC wishes they didn't have to, but that's the cost of doing business. Um, I think that the UFC, you know, Endeavor has a sort of belief that um, you want to be the owners of the live events, that the problem with being ESPN is, yes, you make billions of dollars from rights fees, you make lots of money from advertising, but you had to pay the NFL $2 billion a year for uh, Monday Night Football. You did great. You you know really built up the product. Now you need to pay $2.6 billion. And they're paying the NBA between them and Turner. I think it's $2.6 billion a year. When that deal is up in a couple of years, I'm sure the NBA is going to be asking for more money. And so the problem with not owning these sports is the one time you have a great deal and you make lots of money on it, whenever that deal is up, the league is going to come back and they're going to say, great, you have to pay us tons more. And now the margin that you made there is just, just disappeared. And so Endeavor has the belief that we want to actually own these things. We want to own the UFC and be the one selling to ESPN. We want to own pro bull riding and sell it to CBS maybe has the media rights to that. They own fashion events um, and all sorts of sort of live event and other stuff. They, uh, they bought, um, the company that owns 
the rights to like 20,000 Super Bowl tickets so that they can be the one to sell these multi-thousand dollar packages built around the Super Bowl and, and make money there. And that is not a short term strategy when they pay four billion dollars for the UFC. And, you know, I don't know what the UFC's profit is every year, but let's say they did great. And they made two hundred million dollars. You know, we're talking whatever that is, 16 years, 20 years to earn back the amount of money they they spent on this thing. And so I think it's a long term bet that the value of the rights are just going to keep on going up across sports and across live events. And by being the owner of these things, you are going to be the one to profit from that. And so far, that seems to be right. The NFL just made a huge extra amount of money. Uh, the NHL rights just went for a lot. The SEC went from getting $60 million for the game of the week to $300 million for the game of the week. And so if that is the case across sports and it continues to go, then this is a great bet. If the antitrust lawsuit wrecks them, if um, you know, the cable and, and TV industry just completely collapses much faster than people think. And you and I are looking at our phones or on Netflix instead of buying pay-per-views or instead of tuning into ESPN, then it'll have been a really bad bet. And I sort of historically have been on the sports rights bubble is going to pop person at some point. I've mostly been wrong. <laughs> the value of these things have mostly continued to go up. And so now I'm hesitant to think that there has to be a ceiling on these things. And like, maybe they are, it's going to keep going up in the next decade. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you soon. You have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.